Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, as we approach back to school, now is the time to get ready for your kids to get out of the house and for you to have time to join the union. That's right, jointheunion.us. Become part of the field army that will help protect American democracy for the next 15 months. Guys, we need your help on the ground. We need your help on the phones. We need your help on texts, on social media. Visit jointheunion.us and sign up today. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Judd Legum, the writer of the daily newsletter, Popular Information. Before that, he founded Think Progress and was research director on the 2008 Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. Judd, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Reed. So, as I said right before we started recording, I love astronomical metaphors in politics, but I do believe that some candidates, even if they have no chance of winning, do have a political gravitational effect on races, and I think that Ron DeSantis fits into that. So I want to get to that in a minute. But before we go south, I want to go to the Beltway, inside the Beltway, and get your sense as someone who has worked in politics, if not as long as I have, but pretty close, your sense of, if you agree with this idea, why so many people in the political firmament in this country, Republicans, Democrats, media, lobbyists, political bureaucrats, association people, why there isn't more frankly, hair on fire about the idea that someone like Donald Trump could return to office? I think it's a good question. I wish I knew the answer. I think that there's a lack of appreciation that, based on the country's current political dynamics, anyone who gets a major party nomination has a very legitimate chance to win. I think the polling are showing us all that. Granted, we haven't had a situation where you've had one of those candidates facing three, four, five indictments at once. And I think there's maybe an assumption that ultimately those will sink him, but we just don't know. You know, it's something that is unprecedented and the impact would be unprecedented. It could, for example, motivate a much higher percentage of his base to turn out than might otherwise come out. There could be a third party candidate that peels votes away from Biden. Certainly there's folks who are working on that. And so if Trump gets the nomination, which he appears on a glide path to do at this point because of a lot of incompetent opposition, which I think we're gonna get to a little bit later, then he has a real chance of winning and it's a huge threat based on everything he says he is going to do. And I think at a certain point you just have to believe him that he will do these things. And yeah, I don't think that there is a realization that this is a very distinct possibility. You know, this is a little bit off topic, Judd, but I was I went and saw Oppenheimer last weekend and I was watching it. And then I was listening to, you know, a couple of different podcasts about the movie and, you know, everybody gave kudos to the individual actors. But, you know, they said that the story felt a little bit disjointed. Now, I read the book and I'm, I'm a history nerd to begin with, so I had a pretty good assumption. But to me, you know, one of the things that I think gets lost in 2023 is why was it a big deal that Robert Oppenheimer palled around with communists in the 30s? Like, why did that make a difference in the 50s? Well, we don't have enough 
sort of communal history and communal memory to understand that stuff, right? They mention J. Edgar Hoover as an aside. They mention the McCarthy hearings as an aside. And so I think part of this, too, is that either we are willfully blind to our own history or we're so ignorant to it that nobody believes what's happened both here in the U.S. and I think post-World War I, actually, and post-World War II, there are a lot of parallels to what we're seeing. But also, obviously, overseas, obviously, Germany in the 30s gets mentioned, or I would venture to say France in the 30s showed probably a better indication of sort of how the hollowing out of a political environment and foundation can be detrimental when a crisis comes. And so there's a part of me that says, too, is like people, again, either don't want to or just don't know how bad these things could be. Yeah. And I think that we haven't had a situation in this country, certainly it's happened elsewhere where you have a significant portion of the population, it's not half, but it might be 30% that is willing to stick with Trump no matter what. I mean, it seems like he could be indicted 12 times. He said that he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and still get the Republican nomination. We thought he was kind of joking, or at least it was hyperbole, but it turns out that was 100% accurate. So you've got that group of people, and then you've got Another group of people who are so blindly partisan that they're going to go for the Republican candidate. I'm not sure how big a percentage that is, or if maybe they're more susceptible to all of the indictments, all the information about we're learning about how close he was effectively to undermining democracy the last time around and how serious that effort was. But the base plus the people who are just ready to support anyone who's not Biden, any Republican candidate, that presents a very real possibility for Trump. You know, that's the other part, too, is just speaking anecdotally, how many of my friends, and Judd, again, I'm in my late 40s, former Republican, suburbanite, all that, right? Kids in middle school, et cetera, et cetera. And how many of my friends, my buddies, I'll even call them, are sick of politics as usual? That doesn't mean they like Trump. And it doesn't mean that they hate Biden, but they're like, you're just part of the establishment. You know, the establishment's broken. Look, I agree with those things. But if trying to defend American democracy means I'm part of the establishment, then I guess guilty as charged. But this is the other part, too, is I don't think we look forward enough not only to what could happen, the downside of what could happen if Trump is reelected, but also the opportunities and the possibilities that while it might take a little longer, a Biden re-election provides really to think about now it will be the second quarter of the 21st century, you know, how we collectively want to look at how we as a country operate. That could be the government, that could be politics, whatever the case might be. And so, you know, even I spend a lot of time in the dark places, but there's a lot of opportunity to be had and none of that happens. None of it is even possible, Judd, if Trump or someone like him is elected. Yeah, I do think it's important to keep in mind and that it is the case that we don't always have a worst case scenario in politics. I think it's true. I haven't been involved quite as long as you have. But I think in the time I have, the one thing that's always true is that politics is unpredictable. And I think that can be both a scary thought and a hopeful thought. Meaning it could always turn out better than you thought, but it could always turn out worse. And things can change very, very rapidly. Yeah. So that's why I think it's it's interesting because these polls come out and, you know, a poll will show Biden up 
two points or three points. And then another poll will show up with Trump up one point or two points. And we're so far out at this point. You know, it's like we're hyperventilating about these polls when the reality is this race could swing five, 10 points in the last couple of weeks, depending on what happens. Right. And so much of it now is determined by externalities. Right. Yeah. Things that are way outside of Biden's control and frankly, way outside of Trump's control. If the economy gains strength, if we see inflation continuing to ratchet down, people's incomes go up, that's going to make a huge difference. That might be a bigger factor than anything that's going to happen in the Republican debates or the general election debates or whatever happens with Trump's legal cases, for that matter. And we just don't know how that's going to play out. But I think it is important for people to understand what kind of election this is. And it's not an election where we have a candidate that has no chance of winning. It's an election where there's a candidate who has lots of problems, but a, a real chance of winning. And it's pretty disturbing to me to watch the attitude about Trump this time around play out. And then thinking back on how people thought of Trump in 2015, it's like he is so buffoonish and such a clown and so over the top with everything he does, everyone's just constantly dismissing him. I mean, that's what happened in the whole 2015 Republican primary is that no Republican would attack him until it was much too late. I think they're at least getting the message a little earlier this time, but it's still probably too late. You make a really good point, Judd, which to me is you could be excused. Look, I certainly need the absolution of in 2015 thinking the guy was a clown, right? Because that's what so many of us had seen him as. He was a carnival barker. He was a TV guy, right? He was the richest man in the world and he was bankrupt the next day. All of that stuff. But we should know better now, right? We don't have an excuse for a lack of imagination, for a lack of believing that this couldn't possibly happen. It's happened. And it happened for four years. It happened in the midst of a deadly pandemic. All of the other corruption, obviously all of the other criminality that came along with his presidency, so much of which we probably either A, don't know and B, might never know. But the idea here is, oh, well, yeah, you know, he's going to be indicted again by Fannie Willis in Fulton County sometime soon. He's been indicted by Jack Smith not once but twice, he, you know, Alvin Bragg. And therefore, you know, it's finally going to be done. But here's what we know. Like we heard this week, Rick heard this week, you know, that the people inside Trump world think this is all going swimmingly. They think this is great. They think, to your point about the glide path, they think they're bringing this baby in for a landing. The nomination? Come on. The nomination, they're really worried. They're not worried about that. And the idea that the rest of us aren't actively deciding that the general election, whether you want to believe it or not, has begun, right? There's not a lot about Donald Trump, certainly, or even Joe Biden that we don't already know as a country, as a people, right? So it's going to be, in my mind, it needs to be, in my mind, the argument about A, who we are as a people, and B, what we want to be as a people in the next 5, 10, 50 years. Yeah. And I think if you're at the Trump campaign, politically, I think they should be feeling good. You know, I think morally, they're all completely bankrupt and they should not be feeling good. But politically, they faced and, you know, to a certain extent, continue to face. But if you back up, you know, six months ago, they faced a real serious threat in Ron DeSantis. I mean, he had won convincingly in 2022 in a year that was not great for Republicans. He had built a national profile. He seemed to have 
the pulse of kind of this sort of new style of Republicans. He's quite a bit younger. He looks like a very formidable challenger. And Trump, from the outset, just relentlessly goes on the attack and defines him as DeSantis tiptoes around Trump and wouldn't say anything negative about him, wouldn't even say that he had lost the 2020 election. And it seems now, you know, DeSantis is getting a little more aggressive. Everyone's getting a little more aggressive. But Trump has built this huge lead and the indictments do help him because it's hard for anyone else really to break out other than DeSantis. And DeSantis has been hobbled so significantly by Trump. So I think politically they have executed by staying on offense. You know, I think one of the things in politics that always works is go on offense from a position of strength. So Trump was strong. He was in the lead. DeSantis gets in. He hammers DeSantis relentlessly anyway. And it goes over well because he's coming from a position of strength. DeSantis is now going on the attack, but now he's not in that position of strength. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Let's switch gears to DeSantis for a second. And not in the context of him being what I'm going to call a viable challenger for the Republican nomination at this point. I think you're right. He had a moment but he didn't know what to do with it because, frankly, he's not a very good politician and his wife's not a very good political strategist. And they have no people around them. And they decided, like they did in Florida in 2020, that it was going to be nothing but a base play and that they did not understand or were not willing to accept what they were going to have to do to Trump right off the bat, as the rest of them didn't, which was you're going to have to attack him all day, every day and never let him get any air. They didn't understand that. And as you know, if Trump finds a vacuum, he will fill it. But here's one thing I do think. I wrote something on Medium a few years ago, and and Rob will put it in the uh, show notes, about the idea that even candidates who don't have a real chance of winning a nomination still have their own sort of political gravity, if that makes sense, which is DeSantis won't be the nominee. But what DeSantis is doing, both as a candidate and as governor, does have, I believe, a tangible effect on American politics, the presidential race, even Trump, which is, you know, he has gone well beyond what I think Trump has done from a practical standpoint on things like African-American, you know, AP history, AP psychology, the idea of saying slavery taught useful skills, even as we were talking about just before we got on, that as we're recording this, DeSantis just removed yet another democratically elected, small d democratically elected prosecutor in Florida for quote unquote, not being tough on crime enough. She happens to be an African-American woman. And so for me, where I see his gravity is actually pulling the Republican Party writ large and even Trump further into the darkness. I agree with that. And, you know, that video that DeSantis produced. Yeah, I don't know if your listeners saw that, but just a video basically taking clips of Trump courting the LGBTQ community, including in, you know, while he was running for office. 
and using that as an attack line didn't go over super well because it was just sort of so mean-spirited and ham-handed. But you have seen Trump go away from that and start to adopt some of the positions that DeSantis has adopted on these issues to make sure that he's not getting traction on there. And I think that there is a real kind of retrograde quality to a lot of this, where we're going back 30, 40, 50 years about the way we address these issues where we can't even speak honestly about Jim Crow or slavery or all of the things that happened in history that brought us here today. And the end of the part of the Republican Party that understood that they were going to have to kind of reach out to these other communities. You know, Trump, I'm not sure how well he did at it, but he would at least try to kind of port these communities. I mean, that was part of his strategy. The one place where I don't think Trump has taken the bait on this, and I do think that he has some political savvy and this is really something that could end up costing him if he doesn't handle it right, is on the abortion issue. He was critical of what DeSantis did with the six-week abortion ban right away. I think we saw in Ohio this week that even in a place that has trended red, this is not playing out well politically when you go to the extremes. And it's a place where, you know, a lot of the kind of also-rans are way out there trying to get to the right, even of DeSantis. And that's, I think, a problem maybe more for the Republican Party writ large than Trump, but we'll see if Trump can avoid it. Well, this is the point. I think you made the right point, which is in look at all of his actions from 2015 on, read all the books about his time in the presidency, in the White House, which was wherever the base goes, it might take him a minute to get there, but he's going to end up there because those are the people that are the ride or die type with him, right? I do believe in some ways, Judd, he believes those are the people and we've already seen it, I guess, that would take up arms on his behalf, right? That would do whatever they thought was necessary to ensure his return to power, his safety or whatever. And so, I mean, even in an interview, Trump said, you know, I don't want to answer the question on abortion because if I answer it one way, these people get mad. And if I answer it another way, you know, those people get mad. But he also said in a previous interview, you know, it was my Supreme Court that overturned Dobbs. So he's not going to get, especially with you know, I think an exhausted electorate, right? He's not going to get, I hope anyway, I don't want to say this. I don't know that he'll get the benefit of the doubt, but for every one of those, you know, voters in Ohio that voted no on Proposition 1 yesterday, Tuesday, as we're recording this, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, Ohio is going to go for Joe Biden either. No, I think that's right. And I think maybe more than the indictments and more than all this other stuff that's happening, that may be where the election is won and lost, is that there are trends in the Republican Party, and I think they are really exemplified by DeSantis, where they've overplayed their hand on a lot of cultural issues. I think there was space for them to play, and like Glenn Youngkin did it fairly effectively to win in Virginia. But it's been taken way too far. And so a lot of these issues, whether it's abortion, whether it's banning books, gay rights issues, they're outside of where even a lot of right-leaning voters are, and it's not serving them 
well. So the ability of the Biden campaign to associate that with Trump and not let him wiggle out of it, I think you make a good point. Roe v. Wade would not be overturned if Trump hadn't uh, appointed all of these Supreme Court justices. That's a pretty strong argument that these cultural issues might end up making the difference if they keep trending the way they are. And again, I think that's one of those ideas where so much of the party, and I, I've used this before, but you know, if you believe the surveys, Judd, somewhere between 60 and 75 percent of the Republican you know, self-identified Republican, either voters or primary voters, are okay with the combination of Trump and DeSantis. We shouldn't assume that, you know, anything's going to change in this 30% that's still hanging out over there. They don't want to go near it, but they got no place else to go, right? So are those people going to stay home next year? You know, are they going to hold their nose and vote for Trump? Are they going to hold their nose and vote for Biden? And so, you know, it's a big hunk of a potential electorate that Trump's got to get back in line. I just don't know that he's capable of it until and unless, again, you know, whether or not it's people like the Lincoln Project or the White House or the president's reelection campaign, make sure he never can. Right. And that's to me is my point is everybody's like, oh, you know, when it comes to spending in campaigns, you know, spend late, spend late, spend late. From my perspective, the election has begun. Push Trump as far away from what I'm going to use this word. and I'm going to use it on purpose because of our research that has shown this away from, quote unquote, traditional American values, I think the better off Biden will be and the country will be because even Roe v. Wade was seen because it was around for 50 years, was seen as accepted and overturning it was seen as radical. And now that we see these things, whether or not it's Florida, Iowa, Idaho, Indiana, those things are not traditional. Telling a woman there's no exception for life of the mother, there's no exception for rape and incest, you know, the, the idea of, you know, it's six weeks, a, a woman knows she's pregnant. Those things are not the norm. They're not what Americans had come to see as normal, certainly not for a women, but be certainly, you know, younger Americans. But again, you got to make the case and you got to make it every single day. Yeah, I think that's interesting when you bring up these kind of axioms that we incorporate into our fundamental belief system in politics, like spend late. And I think it is one of the big traps that people fall into is that probably was true at a certain period of time in a certain kind of media environment and a certain kind of political environment. But these things change and the dynamics change so rapidly. And I really think that even people who are kind of in the middle are so much more dug in. And once they believe something, it's so much harder to change their mind that if you want to push a message through, it does have to be done over a very long period of time. So if you're going to wait for the last month or two weeks, I don't think at this point you're going to change everyone's anyone's mind. I think it's going to have to be a multi-year or at least multi-month effort to do so. It used to be that people thought, well, if you can't do well in either Iowa or New Hampshire, you're not going to win the presidency. Well, Biden got trashed in both of those states and they're just fine because as it turned out we have a much more national system and the national dynamics are so much more important than they were previously not that these wins in individual states can't be important still but i just think it's a lot different than it was you know in the 90s or the early 2000s so you've got to keep watching and keep understanding and incorporating 
how the world is changing into your political strategy or you're just going to get run over. Well, and that's the other part, too, is, you know, if anybody thinks spending a million dollars on broadcast television in Grand Rapids next October, October of 2024, is going to be the difference between winning and losing, like I've got a bridge to sell you. I mean, if you watch broadcast television, right, if you actually sit down and turn on CBS or NBC or ABC, what are you doing during the commercials? You're sure as hell not watching the commercial. And I'm not sure how many people ever really were. And so now the idea that, you know, somehow this will all just be as it always has been. Again, I think whether or not it's seeing Trump as an untraditional candidate, is seeing Trump as a threat, or understanding how you've got to fight a campaign in, again, the early 21st century, it just seems like a lot of this stuff, you know, maybe I'm overstating it here, Jeb, but sometimes I guess, you know, inertia is really a tough thing to overcome, even tactically. Yeah. And things change. You know, it used to be that, you know, I went to law school and I practiced as an attorney for a couple of years in between all this political stuff. But it used to be if you were a local attorney and you wanted to get cases, you put your advertisement, if you could get it, on the front of the yellow pages. And that was a gold mine. If you could get that, pay whatever they would charge, you were going to get calls all day long. And then that was true all the way up until it wasn't true. All of a sudden, everyone stopped reading and using the Yellow Pages. I'm not sure it even exists anymore. And that's happening in dramatic ways and subtle ways where people are paying attention, where their attention is directed, is changing all the time. And I do think there's been a huge failure to adapt in politics. We still see so much of the money being spent in the same way. You know, now maybe that changes this time around. You know, maybe people start to get it, but I think that there is an opportunity to be a lot more creative than we've been in the past. All right. Judd, what's the thing that we're missing? What are you looking at that you feel like needs more attention that you want our listeners to hear about that you're looking at? Let's see. That's a good question. One of the interesting dynamics that I've been reporting on from a number of angles, and I think this relates back to our discussion of DeSantis, is one of the ways that DeSantis is different is he has basically cast aside the traditional Republican role of being a friend to business and are now taking on business, taking on corporations. And I'm not sure how well that has worked out for him, but there is something real there. I think that there is a dissatisfaction among a significant portion of the population with corporate power and how basically how they're treated and how they get along the world versus a corporate CEO and all the kind of indignities they have to face on a day-to-day basis at the hands of corporations. But I don't think necessarily that there's been a really forceful counterbalance to that on the left or in the Democratic Party. And I still think that, for the most part, Democrats continue to view a lot of the corporations as a potential partner, and sometimes they are, for their agenda. So the thing that I think about, and I've done quite a bit of reporting on this, is Joe Biden when he was trying to get through the Build Back Better plan. He was inviting in the CEO of GM, the CEO of Walmart, different folks, 
putting them around the table as if they were supporting it. And in certain ways, they wanted to communicate to the public that they were supporting Biden in this and his clean energy and everything else. But at the same time, they were engaged in a multi-million dollar lobbying campaign to defeat the entire package. And they did. And so I think that on the left and Democrats need to find a way to engage in corporate power and to present a different vision and approach to it that provides some alternative to what kind of DeSantis is selling, which is that, you know, these corporations have all gone woke and we need to take them on. I think that's been put out there. I don't think there's necessarily a counterbalance to that and a thoughtful critique from the left about what the role of corporations are. Well, but also, you know, this is something that you and I talked about going back to what, like 2001, maybe even together, which is, and I know that you've reported on this extensively, and I think even recently, is like Bud Light, Budweiser, AB InBev, whatever we're going to call it. The Republicans are just happy to beat them over the head about, you know, their LGBT positions, et cetera, et cetera, but happy to take their money that so many of those corporations that you and we collectively went after in post-January 6th America for giving money to people who had supported the coup or had objected to the electoral vote count, those people are all getting money again. And there hasn't really been any accountability for corporate America because they don't feel accountable across the board. And I guess at this point, why would they, right? I think that's right. And I think this goes back to risk taking. It, it is risky to kind of go after these powerful forces when you're in the political sphere. But at the same time, you know, if you look back to how Trump was elected, yeah, he passed a massive corporate tax cut. He filled the White House with Goldman Sachs folks and all of that. But that's not how he campaigned. He campaigned as taking on Goldman Sachs, as taking on corporate power. And that was effective. And I think that's something that, especially with Biden as the standard bearer, and I, I think he's been effective in a lot of ways. But I think politically, if you're looking at a vulnerability and a place for where Trump can get some traction, it's kind of taking this populist mantle. And I do think there are some interesting things that the Biden administration is doing. I don't think they've necessarily broken through yet, but these different initiatives are taking to kind of crack down on junk fees, resort fees, ticketing fees. I think that kind of stuff, it, and they've made some progress. Mostly it's voluntary stuff. You know, they kind of do a press conference and they get some companies to, you know, either at least disclose or eliminate fees. But I think that kind of thing where you're kind of taking on big corporations, you're you're exposing a practice that's exploitative and you're you're delivering some results, you know, I think that's to me, that's headed in the right direction. But if Trump is able to take the mantle of, hey, I'm taking on the corrupt government, corrupt corporations, everyone's against me, and this is the people rising up, that's gonna be trouble. So I think there needs to be a real way and a, a real sustained effort to kind of look at corporate power in a smarter way and understand the role they play. Because a lot of the times they're kind of adopting these progressive policies on their Twitter account. But if you look at how they're actually acting, what their lobbyists are doing, they still are a huge 
effectively these, especially these trade associations, are really an arm of the Republican Party. And one of the one of the most powerful things the Republican Party has going for it is places like the Chamber of Commerce, the Business Roundtable, these huge, massive, well-funded lobbying efforts that get Republican policies through. Right. And I mean, it's Alec, the Heritage Foundation, you name it, right? And look, I mean, this was part and parcel of Republican slash conservative activity for most of the last 30 years or so, Jed, right? This isn't new news that they've been doing. this. It's not like, oh, yeah, did you know that corporate America is usually aligned with Republicans? What? That's ridiculous. Now, let's be clear. They give lots of money to both. But to your point about those sort of front groups and those associations, you can see how it works. Yeah. What's new, I think, is how many prominent Republicans are now presenting themselves as anti-corporate and trying to take some of that mantle. And in some ways, they're getting the, you know, and this is some of what I've been trying to expose in, in the report is like they're having it both ways. Kim Reynolds, who's the head of the Republican Governors Association from Iowa, she's selling koozies that say real women making fun of Bud Light, attacking Bud Light, kind of supporting the Bud Light boycott. At the same time, as head of the Republican Governors Association, she's collecting $50,000 checks from Anheuser-Busch. So she's still getting the money, but her public position is she's taking them on. She's taking on these woke corporations that are trying to destroy America. So it's an interesting place where we are right now, because I think a lot of these traditional roles for the trade organizations and even the businesses themselves continue. But politically, we're in a much different place as far as where the typical Republican talks about corporations and their role. Right. I do believe that if you look at what Trump promised to his main constituencies, he promised the wealthy massive tax cuts and he gave it to them. He promised evangelicals and hard right religious folks, judges and the Supreme Court, and he gave it to them. And the rest of the coalition, which were a lot of disaffected, angry white guys or, you know, working class white Americans, he was their revenge right? He was their voice. And it's weird to say, because it sounds so bizarre talking about Trump, he kept all his promises to his people. He gave them everything they wanted. And that's why I think that all you see, all these wealthy guys or the corporations who say they don't want Trump back or everything else, once DeSantis is gone, you know, they'll play footsie with Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, but they'll all go back. They'll all get back in line because it's easy, right? He's totally transactional. They know what they're paying for and they're fine with it. Yeah. And I think that does actually kind of suggest sort of an alternative reality that DeSantis could have done, which have been said, look, I'm going to do the tax cuts. I'm going to do the conservative judges. We're going to deliver on everything you want, but I'm just going to have less drama about it. I'm not going to be indicted. I'm not going to tweet crazy things all the time and you'll just get what you want. And, and maybe that would have been more effective than what he tried to do instead the approach he took was, I'm going to be farther to the right than Trump on every single issue. And the problem with Trump was he wasn't conservative enough, which is, I think, a hard case to make because, as you said, on the stuff that people care about, he was conservative enough. And as I said before we started recording, very few, if any of these Republicans, live on any sort of left-right spectrum or continuum that you and I grew up with. To me, there's a democracy scale that's progressive and conservative. And then there's Mars, where the Trumps and the DeSantises live. It's not even the same. And I think that lack of understanding, I think, is also something that threatens, you know, what we're all trying to work for here. 
All right, Judd, tell us where we can find you on social media if you're still there and where can we find popular information? Interesting question. Well, you can find popular information at popular.info. I still am on Twitter from time to time at Judd Legum, L-E-G-U-M. And then I'm also on threads uh, where I'm spending a little bit more time at real Judd Legum. For some reason, Judd Legum was taken on threads, so I'm real Judd Legum. So there we go. Perfect. As always, gang, you know, we never know what social media is going to hold from day in and day out, but on Twitter and TikTok, you can find me at Reed Galen and on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Judd Legum, thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.